So we are we are nearing the end of a what would that end up being? Like a seven month journey in Hebrews. And as of last week, we reached a, a pretty critical turning point in the letter where the author turns from this very um, sort of complex, beautiful, very comprehensive theological picture of what's true about the world, of what's true about God, about who Jesus is. And he really turns to the question of like, so what? Okay, so, so now what? In light of all of that, how ought we to live? And really chapters 12 and onward, um, and we're really close to, to the end of the book, are answering that question, which is, okay, how do we live in response to these realities that he's been laying before us? And what he started with last week in the first four verses of this chapter is he started with the idea of, well, we too are to exercise sacrificial faithfulness in the midst of our own trials and challenges of life in the same manner as those that he's just talked about for an entire chapter in chapter 11 did in the midst of their own struggles and circumstances. And so he says, uh, he defines faithfulness as living as though the unseen realities are as real as the seen realities. Last week I said that one of the ways to think about what Hebrews is doing is it's telling us that reality is more than meets the eye. That in fact, half of reality and arguably the more important half of reality are things that we can't behold with our eyes that are actually only seen with the eyes of faith. The resurrection of Jesus, his atoning work in forgiving us and bringing us back into relationship with God, our, our eternal uh, destiny, which is in a renewed heavens and earth that we are moving towards, in even the unity that we have as a people that isn't always necessarily seen with our eyes, but is something that we pursue by faith. That these are the kinds of realities that we need to, by our actions, by what we do in the world, by our posture toward the world, one another, and God, that signal to the world that there is more than meets the eye. Faith is the substance of things not seen, the, the assurance, the, the firm confidence of what we claim to hope for. And so faith puts that stuff into action. Faith actually proves that that stuff is real. And he says, if that stuff is real, then there's a movement toward those things that, that he pictures as a race that we all need to participate in. There's specific ways in which faithfulness will work itself out in your life that are distinct to your story in the same way that there are specific ways in which faithfulness will work itself out that are specific to my life. This is why he uses the language of the race set before us, that, it is, that, that there is a unique way in which we have been called to walk in the specific circumstances, giftedness, limitations, relationships that God has placed around us. And what he's trying to get us to do in Hebrews 12 is to say that now it's on us, the same way that the saints of old ran their race, now we too have to run our race. But, and this is the most important caveat to that, but we don't run that race alone. Not only do we have the witness and the encouragement of those who have gone before us, but most significantly, we have the presence of Jesus himself alongside of us, who is not only one, the one who blazed the trail that we could walk in it, who not only did what none of us could do so that there would be a way forward for us, but also makes himself available in the trials 
and pain and discouragement of our lives, if we will avail ourselves of him, if we will make ourselves um, dependent on him in real ways. This is what it means to look to Jesus, the author and finisher. In other words, look to Jesus, the one who makes your faith possible and will also, if you will use him as your primary resource in the best kind of way possible, will also bring your faith to its completion. He sees it all the way through to the end with you. And so not only is Jesus our model of faithfulness, he's our means of faithfulness. Not only is he our example of faithfulness, he's the source of our faithfulness. And that is is going to be a theme throughout the rest of this book, is to see Jesus, yes, as the one who sets the example of how we're to live in light of these realities, but also that it's not simply that he's our example He's also the resource that we draw from. He, he made, makes possible, this is what it means that he's the, the, the beginner, of the founder, the pioneer of our faith, is he makes it possible for us to follow his example. Now, the author of Hebrews is going to kind of change the metaphor, is probably the simp- simplest way to talk about, to talk about another aspect of, of what it means to both see Jesus as our example and as our resource. And the particular particular image that he's going to get at here is the fatherhood of God and our role as the children of God. And there is a grand sense in which, of course, Jesus is the great example of what a perfect son of God, what, how, how he lived in that reality of having his heavenly father as his primary authority, as his primary resource. And so Jesus is our example in this. But Jesus is also the one who uniquely brings us into the family and makes it possible for you and I, as messed up as we are, to have the audacity to say that I too am a child of God. There's a sense in which even in popular conversations about, uh, not even about religion, but just just sort of in, in wider conversation in culture, there's a sense in which we're all the children of God, that everyone is a child of God. And uh, as a, as a you know, the- theology dork, um, I always bristle at that a little bit. Because I'm like, that's not from a Christian worldview. That's not, strictly speaking, true. That yes, we are all made in the image of God. We are all creatures of God. We are all worthy of a certain measure of dignity because we bear the image of God in us. But the scriptures could not be clear that the fundamental problem that humanity suffers under is that we are not actually members of the family that we were created to be members of. That we have strayed from our heavenly father, renounced our family name, so to speak, and now are in desperate need of being brought back home. This is why all All of the language of the New Testament, at the end of the day, in terms of what Jesus did, in terms of what salvation is, is irreducibly about us being reconciled in relationship to our Heavenly Father. That is foundational to what salvation is. And so your great hope is not that you're a child of God in and of yourself. It's that you actually have the opportunity to become a child of God, which is what you were always created to be. And the human longing for identity, for family, for for belonging is actually fundamentally about us not actually being in that relationship as a child of God. So he says, the author of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 5. One of my favorite things I got to do with the kids this week was teach them what it means when someone stands in front of them and says, okay, Hebrews 12, 5. It's like, what does that mean, right? Hebrews is the book. The Bible is a collection of books. 
and you look up in the table of contents, where's this book called Hebrews? The big numbers on the page are the chapters, and the small little tiny numbers in the midst of the words are the verses. So Hebrews, Hebrews, that's towards the back of your Bible. Big number 12, little number 5. There you go. He says, so in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of, of your own uh, need to be faithful, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. First, it's really important for us to define this word discipline. It shows up no less than what? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I'm counting nine times um, at least that it shows up in this passage. The word discipline for us is largely in Western American culture a negative word. Discipline is not something that you want to experience. It's a bad thing, right? You do something wrong, you get disciplined for it. And that is not not here. That is certainly part of what's being talked about here. And we'll, we'll see that nuance even in what he quotes here. But the word discipline that's used here is actually an ancient word. Uh, it's the ancient word paideia. And probably what you hear in there is paideia is, is uh, it's, it's the same root as we get pediatrician from. And the word paideia here, this word discipline, that will be repeated again and again, the same word in, in all the cases in your English Bible that says discipline, is this much more robust word about kind of the, the overall development of a child, right? Thus, pediatrician. It's, in our church, the, the closest word, the one that we've chosen to kind of double down on, is the word discipleship. Do you hear even the word discipline in there, right? Or see it, kind of, if you visualize it in your mind? So think discipleship here. A word that's, that's very popular right now in, in Christian circles, a word that I deeply love, I think it's a wonderful thing that this has become popular, is the word formation. Maybe that's a word that, that you've heard being used. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. So it's not just you did something wrong and now you're going to have something taken away from you or now you have to you know, um, be separated you know, from your siblings or something, whatever it is, right? The word discipline here is I want you to hear those words. I want you to hear uh, discipleship. I want you to hear formation. I want you to hear spiritual uh, sort of comprehensive development. We define discipleship at, at Jacob's Well, the, the thing that we say again and again in our discipleship course is that dis discipleship is the process by which God increasingly forms us into the people that he created us to be. The process by which God increasingly forms us into true human be beings, which is to say biblically the process by which, to use the, the biblical phrase for this, the process by which God conforms us to the image of his son conforms us to Christ-likeness because who Jesus was was the human being who was fully alive, the perfect human being. And so the process by which we become increasingly truly human is also the process by which we become more like Christ. However you want to, whichever one you kind of want to grasp into in all of those things, I want you to hear that when you hear discipline so that we don't trip up and simply think of sort of punitive uh, discipline in the way that probably pops into most of our minds. I love here that 
he introduces, what he's about to quote is, is uh, one, of the, one of the more sort of key passages in the book of Proverbs. And, and I'll talk about why he quotes that here. But he introduces it so beautifully by saying, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And, and what he quotes here is actually a little bit like tough. It's a little bit like, yeah, God's gonna deal with you. God's got stuff that he wants to do in your life. God's gonna uh, correct you in certain ways and all that. But he says, this is meant to be an encouragement to you. It's also meant to be an encouragement foundationally, as he'll say in the verses that go on, because this shows that the father is treating you like a child. In other words, what your soul most longs for, to be a child of God, to be adopted back into the family of God, is most on display in many ways, according to the author of Hebrews, when God is actually bringing really hard stuff up in your life and trying to change you by bringing those things up. And often the assumed context here in Hebrews 12 is that often that kind of change is, is God's, God's act of forming us, of changing us is most apparent in the midst of life's hardest seasons. He's talking, you can't ever forget that throughout Hebrews, he is talking to discourage people. He is talking to people ready to throw in the towel. He's talking to people because of the cultural winds around them, because of the fact that they have suffered on behalf of their faith, because of the fact that they feel really isolated as Christians. They're not in anything remotely like a pre-Christian, Christian, post-Christian, however you want to name our culture. They're in nothing remotely like that. They're utterly alone in their faith and saying, I, I just want to have friends again. I just want to be normal again. I just want to hang out with people and not have them be like, aren't you one of those like that guy was dead and then he wasn't dead anymore and now you're living in light of those realities? Right? They're ready to, to throw it in for all those reasons. And he says, don't forget that especially in seasons where it's rough, that God's attentiveness to you as a good father is actually evident in the fact that he's not done with you. Is actually evident in the fact that he's still pursuing you and still pursuing change in your life. Now, we can hear that and say, yeah, but that's exhausting. And the author of Hebrews said, yeah, yeah, wait, I, I know that that's exhausting. We'll get to that in a minute. But just know that when God is dealing with you, it's a sign not of his lack of attentiveness. It's a sign not of his absence in your life, but of his particular attentiveness and nearness in your life. And so be encouraged, brother or sister, that God's bringing stuff up in you. Be encouraged that over the last year of COVID and isolation and all these things, maybe some things have been brought out, maybe some patterns in your life, maybe some old hurts have been brought out that feel front and center, that feel really complex and sticky and awful and muddy and mired to work through because it means that your heavenly father is dealing with you as a child. He cares you enough to stay close, right? One of, there are many, many mistakes that we can make as those of us who, who are entrusted with kids, whether parents or teachers or whatever. And I, I'll never forget some of the best parenting advice that, that I've ever gotten was truly the only true mistake that you can make with your kids is to be utterly neglectful of them. And that could mean abuse, but, but it can also mean just total inattentiveness. The only mistake you can make is to not engage them somehow, some way. And yes, sometimes you will say the wrong thing. And sometimes you will 
provide the wrong discipline. The discipline won't match the, the offense. Sometimes you will, they will see you do things and, and model those and you'll punish them for things that they got from you, right? Like, but keep moving toward them. Just keep pursuing them because there's nothing that a child needs more than the attentiveness of a parent. And so long as you're attentive, so long as they know that you're near and with you, you can make a lot of mistakes, but that fundamental reality that you are with and for them will be communicated through all of the mess of your imperfect parenting. Preview, that analogy completely and utterly breaks down with God for all the amazing right reasons, but there is something foundational to this opening exhortation here that says, be so glad that God doesn't leave you to your own devices. Be so glad that just when you think that you have arrived in the Christian life, God will bring a circumstance, God will bring a teaching, God will bring the counsel or challenge of a, a good brother or sister, and you will say, oh my goodness, I guess I'm not done. And it can be so discouraging until we remember, no, this is a sign that there is a father who keeps moving toward us, who's purposeful in his discipline toward us. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? Now he quotes the Proverbs. This, these verses are actually kind of intro verses uh, in Proverbs. They're not right at the beginning, but they're, they're sort of intro verses to the rest of Proverbs. And Proverbs is this wisdom book in the Old Testament that is very much a, father, a father's counsel to his son about how to navigate life in light of the realities of God. It's a very appropriate thing, given what Hebrews has been defining faith as, very appropriate thing for him to quote. And this is how it sets up, in some ways, the entire teaching of Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I'm just going to read that again. This is one of those that kind of pre preaches itself. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline, the formation, the discipleship, the development that God is doing in your life, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The word that really stands out to me in these verses is the word reprove. That word reproved means, I want to get this right. When he says, don't grow weary when reproved by God, that word means uh, exposed, convicted, and then I like this, brought to the point of recognizing wrongdoing. Don't get exhausted when God points out that you're doing it wrong. Okay? Don't get exhausted. Don't get weary because that's precisely what it looks like for God to be your father. And so I think that this is, this is just so essential to, to the life of faith. This is so essential to discipleship. And I've, I've said this. This is one of the things that I find myself uh, as, as, a, as a pastor, as a teacher returning to again and again is I think one of the things that must mark a follower of Jesus over and against the world that should be most radically apparent in, in our lives and in our posture toward life is a willingness to change and an expectation in a, a fundamental assumption that we should probably change. 
a fundamental assumption that there are ways in which we are doing it wrong, right? That should mark us as children of God. Because there is nothing more frustrating than a child who is obstinate and unwilling to change, and I'm not asking for amens because some of the kids are in here, right? Like, is a kid who's unwilling to change, or maybe even worse, a child who, is, who works under the fundamental assumption that they get everything right. What's lovely is a child who, yes, is willing to change, but a child who also will, right, teachability. That's, that's the word here, teachability. And that doesn't sound like some massively, distinctly Christian word, but, oh, I think it is. I think it is. I think that this, that's what this passage is saying, is that fundamental teachability in a, a willingness to say, yeah, I don't get exhausted when I find out that I'm doing it wrong because my fundamental assumption is that it, if you're a Christian, you get into the thing by saying life doesn't work when I run it myself. So how can we have the audacity that on the other side of that confession, now we're like, yeah, but I don't need any help to do it better. I don't need anyone to look in, right? Like, any of you who have coached in any kind of a way, in the athletic sphere, um, maybe, or, or you've experienced coaching, a, a vocal coach, or whatever, again, just think of the student who comes in and says, I'm assuming I'm doing it wrong, and so help me do it better, versus the student who comes in and says, you will now be graced with the privilege of having me on your team, of having me you know, on, on your roster of students. Here's what's crazy. So many times, the people who come in and say, I'm assuming I'm doing it wrong, help me, are not those most in need of that. They're actually often those least in need of it. Professional God, Tiger Woods has gone through like 17 different coaches because his fundamental assumption as the greatest golfer who's ever walked the planet is, I'm probably doing something wrong. Me, I can hardly hit the ball off the tee some days. I've been offered lessons and I'm like, no, I got this. I like the way that I've taught my own self to swing. That's foolishness, Proverbs says. It's foolishness not to receive. Now, okay, now multiply that out. My golf game is, is, is basically the most insignificant thing about me, though it can feel like the most significant thing about me. Let's be real. But what we're talking about here is our comprehensive spiritual, moral, relational development as human beings. And oh, that we as Christians would be those who say, in those categories, I work under the fundamental assumption that I'm doing it wrong. And so tell me how to do it better. And you know how we most do that? By submitting ourselves to this. By walking in every Sunday, by walking in every Wednesday to discipleship course, by walking into every conversation with a trusted brother or sister and saying, I can't wait to find out how I'm doing it wrong and how I can do it better, how I can honor God more, how my life is actually moving toward self-destruction and could actually move toward loving others and actual health for myself. You know how rare that is? That's not, that's not me hating on anybody. I'm preaching myself right now. You know how, how rare that is in our culture right now? What? When was the last time you read anything in any kind of media, right, left, center, 
that was like, I'm going to assume that I'm getting this wrong. So I'm going to invite feedback from others, especially those who disagree with me, because I'm assuming I'm getting this wrong. But here's what I currently believe, and I'm vulnerable enough to say, I'm not sure that this is right, though. We fall off our chairs at that. No, we have elected no one off of vulnerability, humility, and the assumption of wrongdoing. We want people who are sure. We want people whose views are airtight. We follow the, the echo chamber of people who are going to show us just how right we are. Right? Like they have all of the, I was just reading an article in the New York Times, because um, I read the New York Times like once a year on a plane. So now I get to say I read the New York Times. So I was reading the New York Times. No, I was reading this article in the New York Times about, it's so fascinating. It was like the cover of their tech or business page or whatever. And it was talking about how Facebook thought that by opening the world uh, to, to each other, by, by making our voices more available to each other, that it, it would have this amazingly positive effect of, man, we would finally be able to see the opinions of those who are not like us. And, and you could say whatever you wanted to say. And whatever it's been 15 years later or 20 years later, however long Facebook, I mean, you know, like, you don't have to tell, you, know, you don't need me to tell you. Like, it, the impact is stunningly the exact opposite, is that Facebook with each passing year gets more and more narrow in terms of the diversity of voices that any, even any individual user is willing to follow and hear on their page. What would it look like for the people of God, for followers of Jesus, to come in and to humbly say, we of all people, we of all people are willing to, because we have identified ourselves as those in need of salvation, that we of all people are willing to listen, are willing to assume that we're doing things wrong, and yet, here's the other part of it, yet as a, have a measure of truth, have a standard of truth that actually means that we don't just have to be flapping in the breeze for every opinion. We have a firm foundation that we can and must stand on. The word of God shows us. But here's what we do with this word. We take this inerrant word of an inerrant father and we as kids go, we know exactly what he meant though. And we know it better than even the other kids know it let alone the people who are outside of the family who we just want to bash with this truth. Where's the humility? Where's the graciousness as the people of God? And look, it's really easy to throw stones outward and to say, yeah, just see what such and such, you listen to the Mark Driscoll thing, right? And to just say, that's out there. It's here, it's here in my own heart, that lack of humility. Guys, if we're going to move forward as a church, we have to be willing to, to, to have that fundamental assumption that we're doing it wrong in certain areas, that we do have a standard of truth, though, that we have the history of the church that we can stand on the way that they've understood this. But we also have, have to have an openness and a willingness to say, but I can't be the final arbiter of that truth. Can't be me and my own instincts. So one of the things that I would love to be said about Jacob's Well is you get around someone who's been at that church for long enough and you will find someone who can name the ways in which God has changed them over time, can name the ways in which they have gone from doing this to doing this solely because this said so. That I used to think this 
And now I fundamentally change my mind and think this. And then as, as I've experienced that change, it's moved me closer to a fundamental assumption at any given moment that I'm doing it wrong, that I'm probably missing something because I understand I'm a kid, I'm a child. I'm not an authority. I'm not God himself. I'm a kid being worked on over time. And so if you have a question, maybe don't ask me, maybe ask him. If you want to know what I believe, maybe go here rather than to, to you know, my Facebook posts. Got quiet. Okay. It is for discipline that you have to endure, right? One of the things that makes the Christian life so hard is precisely this dynamic. You never arrive. You become a Christian. You feel like I'm in. Then someone brings some sin out in your life. You feel like, oh boy, here we go. And then you, you gain a little victory in that. And then someone else says, yeah, but what about this thing? And then you go, that thing? And then, you gain, and then you start to struggle with that same old sin again. And you're like, oh boy, here we go again, right? It's for formation. It's for discipleship. It's for comprehensive development of you into the human being that you would have to be. You got to stay in the game. You got to keep showing up for lessons. You got to keep submitting yourself to the word. You got to show up at church not just for a social club, but you got to show up because you're going to assume that the word of God will challenge you on any given day because you have a father who's attentive to you. Because, as this next verse says it better than I can, God is treating you as sons. God is treating you as kids, as sons and daughters. That's why it's hard. That's why it takes a lot because you have a God who loves you so much. Some of the kids who grew up in the most loving, attentive households often felt the most exhausted with their parents. Amen? Right? Because standards were really high. What do you do now as an adult, though? Do you look back and say, oh, I wish they had been more neglectful of me? Right? For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. <laughs> if you do not experience conviction in your life, that should terrify you. If you feel completely hardened under the preaching of God's word again and again, if you have sat in this room and sat at discipleship courses and you can't think of a single thing that you have changed about your life, a single way in which you have changed your mind, a single way in which it has drawn you to more loving, sacrificial service of others, that should terrify you. Because that's not the Christian life, right? Like this false gospel that the Christian life is you get in and then God pats you on the head the rest of your life and says, you're doing great no matter what it is. That's a false gospel. That's not a good father. That's adoption with no parenting. That's not a good thing. It's a dangerous thing. Besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? I love this. This is a nod to the fact that most of us superimpose our experience of authority, particularly when it comes to parents, onto the parenthood of God, onto the authority of God. And he's saying, yeah, there's an analogy there, and then it completely breaks down. For verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. In other words, 
All our parents were doing, all that you're doing as a parent, is working on the absolute best that you can within your limitations and your own experience. Right? This is, as a younger parent, one of the wildest things about being a parent is, right, you find things coming out of your mouth that you're like, oh my goodness, I sound like my mom, right? Like, or, oh my goodness, I sound like my dad. Because we're all doing our best. We're going with what we saw. And, and if you do it okay, if you move towards your kids, they'll actually respect you is what this is saying. But God disciplines us for our good. I love this. God disciplines us for our good. But that's an adversative. That's a contrast here. And you say, are you saying that no parents discipline their kids for their kids' good? No, that's not what it's saying. You know what it's saying? It's saying sometimes you do and sometimes you don't, earthly parent. Sometimes you discipline for all the right reasons. Sometimes you discipline for all the wrong reasons. And most of the time, it's somewhere in between. With God, never a question. Every single move of formation in our lives by the scriptures, every single move of discipline from God, every reproof we receive, every time God's word shows us we're doing it wrong and seeks to help us do it in a more God-honoring way, every move toward holiness is absolutely good. You don't have to doubt it whatsoever. He never makes mistakes. As an ancient theologian put it, that God does not withhold anything needful from his kids. And anything that is withheld from us is not needful. You like that? We don't use the word needful. I like that word in that phrase. God does not withhold anything needful from us. And anything that he withholds from us, we don't need it. Why? Because he disciplines us for our good. Full stop, no caveats, no footnote, no qualifications. If he asks it from you, it's good. This is the fundamental fight of faithfulness and obedience in the Christian life. What do you believe about God? Do you believe he's like your earthly parents? Who sometimes got it right, sometimes didn't. Some of you had really horrible experiences of your parents. And God is calling you out of that experience saying, let me heal up some of that because I'm good. I'm always for you. Some of you grew up without parents for various reasons. Some of you have lost parents way too early. He wants to fill in those gaps. He wants to be what every earthly parent aspires to be, but we all know we fall short of. So the fundamental question at the end of the day is do you believe that God withholds good from you? Or do you believe that anything that he withholds is not good for you? Because he doesn't make mistakes. He's not making it up as he goes along. Because I can tell you, if you believe, right? If you and I could somehow believe and I'm not saying that we ever necessarily arrive at this point, but if we could truly believe that if God asked it of me, it must be for my good, oh, that would go such a long way. Because every sin struggle that you have probably has some element of, yeah, but why doesn't God want me to do this? Yeah, but why can't I just, yeah, but I'm weary, I'm exhausted, and this would be a really nice relief. Yeah, but I'm weary and exhausted and feeling like obedience is really hard and disobedience looks really satisfying right now. That's what we struggle with because we believe that God sees us in our weariness and says, I, I'm not going to give them what they want. And um, yeah, they're going to have to, all right, all right, do you. No, no, no. 
He's always attentive, always moving towards you. When, you're, when you're, the Spirit of God is shouting in you, no, don't do this. This isn't going to be good. The next day and a half is going to be miserable and you know it will be. No, don't bail it in. No, don't say that thing. No, don't respond that way. I know it would feel really good to put that person in their place right now. That that is God's goodness. Not his punitive justice. toward. It's his goodness screaming out, saying, this is not good for you, my child. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. These are some of like, this is like one of my favorite single verses in the entire. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. The Christian life is not pleasantry to pleasantry. It's not joy to joy. It's not pleasure to pleasure. It's not, and I love that Hebrews is again being really honest about that. There is denial in the Christian life. There is saying no to desire in the Christian life. But later, what it yields is the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Aristotle once said, I have this written in my Bible. Aristotle once said, the root of discipline is bitter, but its fruit is sweet. The root of discipline, when it's going in the ground, when you're experiencing it, when you're under the weight, when you realize, yeah, I gotta go to counseling to deal with that thing. Or yeah, I do have to go confess that sin to a trusted brother or sister. Or oh man, I think that sermon on Sunday was actually for me and that God wants me to change this about my life. It's painful, it's painful. But the spiritual dynamic is always short-term pain, long-term harvest of peace and righteousness and nearness of God. And the dynamic of sin is always short-term pleasure, long-term disconnectedness, chaos, lack of peacefulness in your life. What the author of Hebrews is saying is maturity, maturity means choosing the former at the expense of the latter. Immaturity means choosing the latter at the expense of the former. In other words, immaturity is short-term pleasure, short-term pleasure, short-term pleasure, short-term, chaos, chaos, chaos in my life, relational mayhem all around me, but pleasure, 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 pleasure. Maturity looks like denial, lack of immediate gratification, peacefulness, relational fruit in my life. The author of Hebrews is saying, we have a, we, right, we have a vine dresser. I am the vine, you are the branches. We have one who seeks to plant us in the soil of his discipline and that that might feel hard, but that there will be a fruit that we get to enjoy on the other side of it. Very few kids, very few kids, when you discipline them, when you hand down a punishment for something that they have done, immediately respond with, that's good, I get it, and thank you, right? Why? Because they don't understand the enormity of their, of their you know, transgression, and they never think that the punishment fits what they've done. Why? Because the distance between the, their little wisdom that they have, think of especially like a little, little kid, and your wisdom is just, is, is just so unbelievably wide. They can't see what you see. They can't see the trajectory, right, 
of whatever, a stolen cookie every night. When you say no to the sugar for every meal and every snack, they can't see the trajectory. They can't see what that root ends up bearing fruit in. When you say, no, you can't be with your brother or sister right now because you need to feel the pain of what you've done to them and how it creates separation in your relationship. You say, no, whatever, they don't care. It's not that big of a deal. Whereas you see the trajectory of if this continues, if you continue to treat each other poorly, there will be a broken relationship between the two of you. And I don't want 35-year-old you to say, why didn't you take care of this sooner, mom and dad? Why didn't you do something? Why didn't you tend to our relationship? Try saying that to a four-year-old. I'm tending to 35-year-old you, right? Yet this is what we do if you're a good, gracious parent. Sometimes we think that the gap between a four-year-old and a 38-year-old, that that gap is larger than the gap between us and God. And I'm telling you, the gap between my wisdom and God's wisdom is infinitely greater than the gap between my wisdom and my precious 10-year-old. And if I know, buddy, I know a little bit better right now than you what's good for you. Do you know that? It's a hard thing to believe, right? I'll give you your five bucks later. It's a hard thing to believe. But what childhood of a good heavenly father looks like, what, 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 what actually bearing that identity looks like, is increasingly understanding two things. One, the gap between my wisdom and his is infinite. But his love and goodness is at every single millimeter of that gap. That one thing that you never need to doubt, yeah, his, his wisdom is greater, but his, his love is, is infinite. It, it's, it's, it's the solid foundation of every ounce of his wisdom is his love and grace towards you. And this is why we must, as Christian people, right? It's not so that we would be better than the world. It's not so that we would flex our humility, right? Like that would be totally undo the point. This is just living. This is the substance of faith. We believe that that God of the universe, that our perfect creator came all the way in between the gap between us and him, went all the way into it to infinite cost to himself, that there was real pain. We were telling the kids all week this week at Well Kids Camp, these stories aren't fairy tales. They're not Aesop's fables. They're, they're not moral morality plays. These are real things that happen. Do you believe that that same one who now asks you to lovingly submit to his lovingly fatherhood over you, bridged that infinite gap, came died on a cross, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, such that those words never need come across your lips. Because if you believe that, if you believe that he is that infinitely good, gracious, loving, sacrificial to him, then when he's treating you as a son or daughter, it becomes a joy rather than something to be resisted. When you live with the fundamental assumption that you're doing it wrong, it becomes a joyful thing because you're saying, my perfect coach can tell me how to do it better. Not so that I'm better than other people, but so that, right? What's said here is not, notice, this is the last thing I'll say. Notice that for so many of us, we think that the great enemy of our lives is our suffering. Is our suffering. We think that if God would just do something about our suffering, we'd be totally fine. And God says it wouldn't be enough to take your suffering away because there's a far greater enemy to your life. The greatest enemy of your life is sin. 
That's the reality. That's what's destroying you. It's not your suffering. Your sin is destroying you. And here's what God says. He says, I love you enough that I will use your suffering. I will use the hardest seasons of your life. And one thing you can be sure is that I'm always dealing with, with the process by which I want to make you more like my son. And so if, if sin is coming out, see that as the enemy. Because God, so often we can think, if God were really good, he would withhold suffering from me. No, if God were really good, he would be doing everything he possibly could at expense to himself, at infinite expense, to deal with our true enemy, which is sin. That's what he's doing. And he's using suffering. He will use suffering as a tool to deal with your true enemy. Because he knows that holiness, what it says here is it says, he's doing these things so that you might share in his holiness. And he says, if you increasingly share in my holiness, you can get through your suffering. But if all I dealt with was your suffering, you would still be under the weight of your sin and you would still be suffering even in the ease and comfort of your life. You see that? So he says, I'm gonna use your suffering to deal with your actual enemy. Because at the end of the day, it is just simply the case that what God wants to do is he wants to free us from the thing that wars most against our souls, which is not that this life is hard, it's actually the sin that leads to death and separation from him. And so if we share in his holiness, and this is why, this is why one of my prayers for Jacob's Wells, we need some older saints, y'all. We need some older saints who can tell us that it was not in spite of their suffering, but it was through their suffering that God dealt with the sin in their lives, dealt with the limitations, dealt with the brokenness, dealt with the ways that they had been sinned against in their lives. And that not only do they say that he is good in spite of the suffering that I've been through, but I saw his goodness most so often in those seasons of suffering. Because the whole world, I just heard a, a really uh, much older saint, pastor who I really admire, uh, say, the whole world can say suffering is normal. That's not a distinctly Christian worldview. The whole world says that suffering is normal. It's the Christian who can say it can also be purposeful. And that that's only the case because of that. Because unless there's one who can actually conquer sin and all of its consequences, then what hope do we have of being freed of our actual enemy in life? And yet he pursues us to share in his holiness. We don't have a half gospel that just brings us in. We have a God who adopted us and then fathers us perfectly, lovingly. Will we submit to him day after day, assuming we're doing it wrong? That our only hope is walking ever increasingly with his voice, with his word over our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you treat us as sons and daughters, that you do not leave us as illegitimate children, but God, that you have adopted us in by the cross and that now by Christ's work in our lives, by the Spirit, that we can ever increasingly share in your holiness. So Lord, I pray that we'd be a church that embraces the paideia of God, that embraces discipleship, that embraces formation, Lord, and that we would not live under the fundamental assumption that we are finished products. Lord, let it not be so. Lord, break that stronghold in our lives, individually break it corporately. And yeah, I pray that you would break it in the American church, Lord, that we would no longer be known by our arrogance and our assurance, but that we would be known by our humility by our love, Lord. You didn't say Christians will be known uh, by their confidence that what they believe is exactly right. You said we will be known by our love. God, make us known by our love. Start here in this church. Start here in this community, Lord. God, we want that work in our lives. Give us endurance to receive your forming work in our lives. Praise pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.